0: This episode is proudly brought to you by Ringers Western, an Australian brand merging the country and city through the style, quality and comfort of their clothing and boots. Ringers Western, sticking together. I, to go. I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word to describe it. <laughs> Welcome back to the new season of From the Saddle. I'm Caitlin Hewitt. You're going to be noticing a few things done differently throughout this season. I'm so proud of all the things we have accomplished as a team so far, but from little things, big things grow. And with that, I'm excited to welcome Ringers Western as sponsors for this first and the next couple of episodes. We've spent the last few weeks getting to know the team over there, and we're discovering all the great ways they support rural Australia through sponsorships and charity work, so we're really proud to be included in that. Now, on to today's guest. He didn't grow up in the bush, and he wasn't even really at home in the saddle until recently. Josh Gibson was a three-time Premiership winning player in the AFL, representing Hawthorne for 160 games until injury ended his career in 2017. Well, since then, he's opened a chain of gyms and developed an addiction to the sport of camp drafting. The laid back family fun atmosphere is what he likes, but as I discovered throughout this interview, Josh is a sucker for anything competitive. Josh, thank you for joining me. I understand that you are very, very busy, but we are really excited to have this chat with you and get to know Josh Gibson and the life that you live.
1: No, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Happy to share whatever knowledge I can, albeit be very little amount.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Now, Josh, I understand that you grew up in East Melbourne. Dad was from Barbados and mum from country Queensland and New South Wales. What was your upbringing like?
1: Yeah, you're spot on. I was uh, grew up in Melbourne. As you said, my parents' background there was Queensland and Barbados, and, and then they moved to, or they met in New South Wales, and They moved to Melbourne where uh, both me and my brother were born. So growing up in the eastern suburbs was great. We actually had, you know, had a lot of kids that lived in our street. We lived in a a dead-end street, which actually back then, there weren't too many houses around, so it had a pony club backing onto it um, and paddock. So, look, we were able to... uh, ride bikes and you know get outdoors a lot, which I guess is different to a lot of kids that live in the city these days. So I was pretty lucky to live in an area with plenty to do and plenty of kids that were in my primary school in the street.
0: Yeah, mate, I've never actually been to Melbourne, so I'm going to need you to paint me a picture of that because my small country town is very different from (laughs) Melbourne and it blows my mind when you say you had a pony club that backed onto your street.
1: Yeah, look, it was – so I was in Blackburn and um, we're talking late 80s to uh, early 90s, like 1980s, sorry, to early 1990s. And, you know, back then in those suburbs, they weren't fully developed, so there were a lot of ovals. And as I said, we had a pony club, which was quite unique because I drive down that area now and it's just all houses. You know, there's been estates and everything built. So to be, I guess, 25 minutes, 30 minutes from the city – and to have that back then was quite unique. So we were very lucky because, you know, if you were to venture to that area now, it's just house after house after house, probably with, with not even uh, not even much grass on the uh, nature strip.
0: Yeah, what a wonderful opportunity to grow up at that time.
1: Yeah, look, we were, um, you know, we we're lucky. I mean, you, look at sort of kids today and you know i'm talking from a melbourne standpoint very different to where you are kids in the city you know it's all about machine games and you know xboxes and all these and and you know one people aren't getting outside as much and you know kids aren't as free to ride around on bikes because they're worried about um safety and all these type of things and so you know i was very lucky to grow up in the era that i did where you could jump on your bikes and ride up and down the street and do you know, it, it sort of felt safe and people weren't too worried. So very, very different to those areas today.
0: Yeah, and mum would sort of call out from the veranda or the front door that it's dinner time, and you would all come running from wherever you
1: were. That's exactly right. You know, it was, uh, I remember the, the next door neighbours used to have this huge cubby house, and and so we used to spend most of our time in there, and, and you just hear the parents come out the back and, all. Well, my mate's parents when they wanted you to go home just shoe you home to dinner but yeah we were uh, we were sort of lucky that we had had things like that and actually our primary school as well was one block up so you know we spent a lot of time playing up there
0: yeah was it a big school
1: no it was or uh, Hill South it was called the first year I went there and then it changed to Roberts McCubbin primary school so it wasn't small but it wasn't big you know like and you probably had about I'd say mid 20 kids per year level so it was a great little place, and and I guess for me, you know, after playing football, that was probably where I first came across what AFL was. So I definitely have fond memories of going to primary school.
0: Yeah, we will touch on the AFL soon. So with pony club at your back door, you did some horse riding when you were younger. Is this where it all started?
1: Despite there being a the pony club at the back door, I never ventured to that one. <laughs> <laughs> so look, um, you know, mum and. From Queensland and, and living rural out there, she grew up riding. My grandma lived in Barrel, where I um, you know, I used to spend every school holidays going up there and and being on a um, you know, they had a kids holiday program, horse riding adjustment, and and so I did a lot there and and out towards Yarra Valley, past where I was living. Uh, and there are a lot of piney clubs out there, so I started at a place called Tandyvale, which is out that way and it, it's still there today. So um, that was where, um, you know, my first encounters with uh, horses really started.
0: Was it an interest that you had, Josh, or was it more so mum did it, mum wanted you to do it?
1: You know, I, I don't even know how it came about. So it must have been that mum did it and then she wanted us to try it, But I do remember I, I was into it after that because I – you know, I remember back in the day we used to have the World Book Encyclopedia, and um, I can just always remember pulling out the H book and um, and looking up the horse head. <laughs> I just I just got this vision of this apple which used to be in there. So she obviously um, did something to get it uh, ingrained in my head in a certain way because um, you know I've still got some some of my youngest childhood memories for some reason sort of those little moments that are surrounded by horses.
0: You just toyed with the idea, I guess, of riding horses. You know, you didn't live and breathe it as a childhood. It was more so an experience that you got to have on school holidays.
1: Yeah, look, it was something that we'd probably go and do on Sundays. And then when I was on school holidays, go up to Barrel and, and, you know, do it for a few weeks. But as a kid, I was doing all sports. You know, I had cricket. I got into Aussie rules. I played squash. I was big into rollerblading and I played ice hockey. So I did a lot of sports and, and horse riding was one of them.
0: Yeah. And I guess one of the added bonus of being brought up where you were is having access to all those different types of sports.
1: Yeah, most definitely. And I think we're we'll, brothers well, we're lucky that our you know, our parents were um, you know, willing to let us try everything and and, you know, they I look back now, they gave up a lot of their time driving us around to some of the most random areas to do different (laughs) sports. Um, As I said, we played ice hockey and my brother was big into that. And, you know, there were four rinks. There was one in Bendigo, (laughs) which is a fair way from the city, one in Oakley, and then another one in Bayswater and uh, one in Geelong. So they were spread out everywhere. Um, I'm trying to juggle driving him to those when I was playing other sports as well. So, We're pretty lucky that our parents, you know, just let us go after any sport we're interested in and and they um, bent and moved their time to allow us to get there.
0: Yeah, that is amazing. Every bit of your body sounds like it's just touched with some sort of sporting ability. Mate, you started playing football at around 10 or 12. Did you always want to be a professional athlete or was this something that just progressed and it was a path that you went down eventually?
1: Yeah, look, I never had any intentions to be a professional athlete. You know, as I said, going to primary school, I I found out what what Aussie rules is, and, and it's called Oz now. But back then, because it was obviously just in Victoria, so it was called Vic Kick. And um, I came home from primary school one day and said, you know, and start doing this AFL. And, and my parents had no idea what the sport was with their backgrounds, and mum being rugby and, and dad so heavily in the cricket. Yeah, I just I really did it for fun. I played a lot more squash younger on than um, than football and I think at one stage I was pretty good at squash and um, mum wanted me to wear the goggles and um, I thought they looked a bit goofy so I quit the sport and, and that's when I really, <laughs> really moved into football. So probably got mum to thank for making me wear those goggles so I gave it up and, and went down the football path.
0: So with parents that didn't live and breathe the AFL, it was all fairly new to you all, come training and, and games, did mum and dad kind of just park up on the sideline and, and leave it to the coach or did they eventually run the sideline with you and give you criticism or, or whatever like we see nowadays where parents are so actively involved in the kids' sports?
1: No, look, they were definitely in the background. You know, they came and supported me most definitely, but, um, you know, they were never ones that were involved in being the club officials or involved in the footy club they probably worked in the canteen or something a few times to help out there but they were never pushy and I think that's probably why I always enjoyed my sport so much is that they let us just go about and and enjoy it and you know after looking back now and playing footy and you see some kids where they're sort of forced and they got a ball put in their hands but whatever age and they're sort of pushed down that path and sometimes can be trying to live out a parent's dream can get pretty tough so I was very lucky that um, parents supported us in every way possible but there was no pressure on us to play any particular sport or get to any great achievements it was you know just do it to go out there and, and have fun with your friends and when I go and talk to kids now, I'm like, you know, whether you, whatever sport you're playing, it's about getting out there and having fun with your friends and, and not pressuring yourself from a young age because if you're lucky enough to make it to the top level, there's plenty of pressure later on.
0: Uh, I've got a six-year-old and I was not prepared for the amount of pressure that comes from parents in school sports, in football, and it's blowing my mind.
1: Yeah, it's not healthy and... It's not a great look because you know, I've sort of agreed. Now living in Ballarat, that I'm going to play footy again this year. And I was talking through the umpires on the weekend, and and you know, we were talking about some of the abuse that these younger umpires are getting, and and how it's cutting back on numbers of kids wanting to be umpires, and the stuff that's getting thrown at them from parents from an abuse standpoint. And you know, it it is really disappointing that um you know some parents, as I said almost trying to live out their dream through their children and put ex- extreme pressure on it. And, and it can get pretty ugly at, uh, at some of these Jesus sporting events.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And kills the spirit.
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, it's as I said, sport for me was a way of getting out with your friends and really enjoying yourself. And I, I still say that to people when I was playing AFL. I, I joked that it was like being at lunchtime break with 40 of your mates every day, but you were getting paid to be fit. So... You know, you've got to enjoy playing things and as a child, you should definitely be able to experience that playing sport without the um, external pressure from from parents and and loved ones.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, Josh, you were spotted in high school playing football and then drafted at 21. Can you remember feeling the pressure? At, At what point did it go from like hanging out with your mates to no, actually, this is the real deal?
1: Yeah, I think um, when I was in year 12, so I was was young in year 12, I was 17, and I went to a private school, and and they used to select the side based off all the schools, you know, the sort of team of the year, and I made that, and we played against the other private schools, and and I happened to play on a guy that was touted to go in the top 10 draft that year and played pretty well on him, and from there, I sort of got invited to a draft camp, and then things started getting pretty serious, and... The next year when you're under 18s and you want to get drafted, I think that's when you start feeling pressure, um, pressure to perform. Are there going to be recruiters at the game? Are they watching me? You know, all these things that you start feeling. And to not get drafted is pretty tough. And I think that's probably when you started feeling the first bit of pressure was wanting to get there to that level. And then, you know, once you get there, you know, it's an amazing experience. You know, I can remember exactly where I was when I got drafted after a few years of missing out, but that then turns to pretty quickly thinking about, well, I'm at the club now. I don't want to get delisted. I want to play senior games. So, yeah, it was really at that 17, 18-year-old where you start feeling the pressure to make the next level or to make the grade.
0: So talk me through when you were drafted and what that felt like.
1: Yeah, it was a pretty special moment because, I said, I'd missed out on a few drafts. Most guys get picked up from under-18s, about 90% of guys in Victoria and I didn't get picked up there, and I went and played in the VFL for two years, which is the reserve grade for the AFL, so if you don't make the AFL team on that weekend, you go and play with your reserve side, and I played for Port Melbourne, who was aligned with North Melbourne, and my goal there was just to play better than the North Melbourne guys that came back and after finally being there for two years and training a few pre-seasons and getting through that, I can remember they picked me in the rookie draft. So there's 45 guys at the club, I think there's 42 players, and then they draft three rookies. So you're not on the senior list, but if someone gets injured, you're able to go up and be elevated to play. So I was just in by the skin of my teeth, but um, yeah, I can remember I was – showing my car up at a petrol station on um, Punt Road in, in Melbourne, which is a you know pretty main road. And and I was actually training with North Melbourne at the time and the recruiting manager called me and said, oh, we're just about to pick you up with uh, pick number seven in the rookie draft. And um, very proud moment, um, being able to call my parents and, and tell them that I finally got there.
0: I, I reckon your mum would have been so proud.
1: Yeah, no, she's always been a great supporter. We always laugh because as she sort of learnt more about the game, she sort of got a little bit louder. She (laughs) understood what's going on out there. Um, But, yeah, we used to laugh because I remember as a kid, you know, you played 50 games and you used to get a banner, you know, a paper mache banner or whatever it was that they'd put together, crepe paper, whatever you call it. And um, it was a big deal to get to run through a banner like a, a superstar and that was the one week you got your game filmed, and and I can remember Mum trying to film it, <laughs> and she's trying to cheer at the same time. But yeah, it was quite funny. So <laughs> I think it was from that moment on, um, she started working out what the game was about. But they've um they've always been great supports, and I was I was really happy to um to make that top level, you know, because they make sacrifices. As I said, I was still having a crack after I'd finished school and was studying and. You know, they let me defer uni for a year and probably supported me a bit to keep chasing what had become a dream. So, you know, very, I guess, indebted to them to allow me to chase something that I wanted to do and, and ultimately get there.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So excitement, you know, the clouds lifted, the pressure sunk in. It doesn't stop there. Obviously, a lot of sacrifices are made, like you just said. As the games continue and the years pass on, the pressure still stands. Did you find the pressure would sometimes cloud your passion?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. There is so much sacrifice and we always used to talk about the difference from a guy coming from the country to a guy in the city and, and you know, to play for a team in the city that I grew up in makes it tougher because you've got all your mates there. So. When it comes time to sacrifice 21st birthdays or weddings or trips away or you know wanting to travel overseas with mates and have to turn them all down it can get tough at times um, if they don't fit in with the schedule so there is a, a huge sacrifice from from that standpoint and and I, I look back over my career which started in 2005 and finished in 2017 and and, you know, I probably played through two different time zones there where I started. There were no camera phones. There was not so much media scrutiny, whereas by the time I finished, social media was a huge thing. You know, the way the games are analysed in terms of, you know, people play these super coaches and how many touches did players get. And, and so the the scrutiny from the public is at a, just an extremely high level now to, compared to when I started. And that definitely at times gets the better of you and, and you know, you, you can find yourself reading things on social media and watching people bag you and, you know, like you can get caught in it. So it is a vicious cycle for the guys playing these days, most certainly with with the powers of social media and, and I guess, the public's want for news and data straight away. You know, people don't want to wait for the news at 6pm at night anymore. They want to pick up a phone and, and have it now and, and whether that's in sport or other fields, it, it makes it very tough.
0: Yeah, do you find it's, I guess, reshaping the industry?
1: Oh, without a doubt. The way that people are judged on performances and, and their worth in the game, despite what your footy club thinks of you inside the four walls of your footy club, the external view, which can be completely wrong sometimes because they don't actually know what your role is for the team, that can be a huge burden on players and, and, you know, they could actually be playing well for their side, but the pressures externally from what other people are judging them on don't always align and, and that can become too much for players at times.
0: Yeah. Josh, when you were 23, you had an accident that could have changed your life's trajectory. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, I was, uh, well, we were playing, I was at North Melbourne, we were, we were playing over in, in WA and caught the red eye, the red eye home. Sorry, and we uh, probably had one or two beers. Nothing, nothing crazy at all. Like literally, I think might went one beer and went home to bed. And got up to go to the toilet during the night, and I think I well, I obviously walked too fast to the bathroom. And when I got there, while I was going to the toilet, I fainted and hit my head on the sink and then on the floor. And you know, it was it was funny because at the time didn't think anything of it. Uh, went back to bed, got up to go to recovery in the morning, have a swimming session at the beach, and and I just thought I was drunk and everyone was like, you know, you can't be drunk. We hardly even drank anything and I could hardly keep my eyes open and then that whole Sunday I was vomiting and couldn't get off the floor and went to training Monday and was still struggling and and doing weird stuff and and after that the doctor said I should probably go to hospital and, you know, I remember now it was this Epworth Hospital, which is a, a pretty big hospital near the MCG in Melbourne and, and the road outside um, Swan Street's very busy trams and cars parked everywhere. And, and I just parked the car in the middle of the road thinking I was in a car park spot and uh, went into the hospital and was like, I hope something's wrong with me. And they said, yeah, you've got severe bleeding and bruising of the brain and sort of rushed me straight up upstairs for, for more tests. So got the... Doctor's report was, you know, that I had, as I said, severe bleeding and bruising, um, which was a pretty big trauma from the fall. And, uh, you know, at the time they said, not sure whether you'll be able to play football again based on the uh, the head injuries you sustained from falling over.
0: That is incredible. That's what <laughs> three day, two two or three days from the accident, and severe yeah. bleeding and bruising on the brain. How how did you manage to? Like, how did all that align?
1: Well, um, afterwards, like, I had to go through so many tests, you know, because the first four weeks, fast injury, you know, you got to get the swelling and, and bleeding down. So they are like, you know, you, you weren't allowed to drive a car, can't try and rush blood to your head. They're like, you know, your diet's got to be elite to that level that you can't even be constipated because if you went to push, it's too much blood to your head. That's how extreme it was. And, and so I had to go through all these tests, and I know that they came out. And then they, you know, they test your heartbeat, irregular heartbeats, all this type of stuff. And and my resting heart rate at the time when they did that was like was sitting on the couch was was low thirties. And and she sort of couldn't believe it. And they just put it down to that my resting heart rate is so low that I just got up too quickly, and that rush of blood just made me faint. So yeah, it was it was pretty ex- extreme afterwards, as I said. Sitting around for four weeks, um, not knowing if you're going to be able to play again and, and having to go through, you know, a f- fairly extensive motor, muscle memory, you know, brain fog type of uh, trial testing with with a bloke that's probably giving me uh, patterns and, and number sequences and stuff that, that, you know, 10-year-old kids could answer, and I was uh, stuffing them up.
0: So give me an example.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, you know, like... It, it would just be a piece of paper and you'd have to draw these shapes and see how far you could get along in a certain amount of time and then, he'd, you know, show me shapes and, and patterns and then I'd have to try and draw them back again based off what I remember. He'd then I remember the, probably the – well, it's not funny, but he'd be – say something like, all right, I'm going to give you a letter. I want you to say as many words that start with that letter but you can't say names. And he'd go, a, and I'd be like, Adam, and he'd be like no names. And I'd be like, okay, Andrew, like I just have no. I, had... I was like a preschooler. And, you know, as I got better and got better, and, and, you know, that was one of the things I had to tick off to play again. And, you know, it was pretty daunting just working out if I'd, you know, get the, mo- <laughs> the motor skills back to, to answer questions of, and, Name something that starts with A that's not a name. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but on a serious note, Josh, sitting there, can you remember comprehending what you had to do and then not being able to do it and getting frustrated or or was it all a bit of a blur?
1: Yeah, probably the frustrating thing was, you know, he'd show me a, a pattern, you know, so it might be like a black triangle with a dot and then, you know, a sequence of things and then having to go, okay, now draw it all flip another one and be like, okay, which one was it? And just not being able to answer it because I was sitting there, I felt normal, you know, like it wasn't like I'd just woken up from a coma and couldn't really do anything. Like I was, I felt fine. I just had no ability to sort of <laughs> remember things.
0: From the saddle, from the Here at From the Saddle, we love movers and shakers, especially when they're from rural Australia. Picture this. A few ringers sitting around a campfire in the Kimberley after a hard day in the yards, frustrated by a lack of durability and quality in their clothing. Determined to do something about it, they decided to fix the problem themselves. From back then in 2012 to today, the Ringers Western range has expanded to meet every dress need from dusty cattle yards to corporate boardrooms and everything in between. Ringers Western. Sticking together. From the, saddle. From, the, from the saddle. I just, I'm like, I am sitting here with my mouth open, completely shocked, and and trying to sort of put myself in your position because at 23 years of age, most 23 year olds are out, you know, night clubbing. You know, they work for the paycheck. Here you are, a professional athlete at 23 years of age. You've gotten up too quick to go to the toilets. Fallen over. Serious bleed on the brain, bruising, and then being told you may not be able to play football again. How's your head going right now? Like the emotions, the. I
1: think the other the other part was is that no one really believed the story, um, yeah. and I still, I still have like players that you know I played against. Them. Oh, the old bleeding on the brain. Hey, you just fell over at home, like. If you were to ask people, like, survey them now, some people that knew about it, um, they would say, no, it was a lie. That's not the real story. Um, And even at the time it was because I was sleeping with a mate and I was out and then my parents came into hospital. And by that stage, like, this story had just got out that this sounds a bit offensive, but I'd taken home a stripper and then – like she'd come inside and then she had a pimp. Her pimp came in and bashed me oh, and said so I could rob my house. And so my, I think my parents came and I was like, well, my son wouldn't date a stripper. And uh, these stories were just going everywhere. And then my remember that was like, guys, he's just fallen over, going to the toilet, you know, like just just how things get legs. So, yeah, it's, it's quite funny that – well, not funny, but a lot of people still to this day think that, you know, it was the great cover-up of me falling over in the bathroom.
0: And a part of you probably wishes that you did have a cool story like that to tell.
1: Exactly right. I just, you know, trying to tell people at the age of 23, I just going to hang a piece in the middle of the night. I just got it completely wrong. So, yeah.
0: (laughs) I was actually expecting you to say that your career got the blame for that.
1: No, look, it's – no, I was was lucky. You know, I was a pretty competitive person and and there's no doubt that during that stage I sort of looked and I was like, right – you know, everything could be taken away at 23 after you just got here. But there was also like a big part of me that was like, oh, I'll just prove people wrong. And and you know, I actually got back, and I think I played the last two games before you know we went into finals that year. So you know, there's with every downfall or injury, you know, there's a there's a positive side of it, and it just builds your resilience. And and you know, that was just another one for me that probably made me more a resilient person. So. You got to try and take the positives out of any situation, I guess, and that was as cliche as that sounds. And and that just was my focus that if you know, so I got another chance to play footy, which I thought I would, that just give it your all because you don't know when it can be taken away.
0: Absolutely. So for four weeks, you sat around. You know, and you had to be very careful about the blood you were sending to your brain. Were you concerned about this?
1: Uh Yes and no, like you're just sort of sitting there waiting, hoping that when you go in for your next scan, that will look better. Um, it was probably all the other stuff, you know, like I'd go in later on after the 4 sort of stuff, like running on a treadmill and, you know, you'd wear like this sort of swimming cap thing that had all these, I don't know, like not pins but little receptors in there or something that read, that would look at your brain after exercise and, you know people get their um, blood pressure taken. I used to have to walk around with one of them on my arm and with a battery pack sort of on my belt that it could just randomly take my blood pressure throughout the day. So it was probably those things I was more nervous about getting like a negative result. But you know, it wasn't just that I had a rush of blood and fell over that I actually had an irregular heartbeat or something else going on which caused it. Yeah. Um, okay. Because that yeah that would have that would have been the the worst scenario, but. I haven't really told. I've told a lot of people this actually, but after it, I used to find that sometimes when I drank, I would black out. Not many people know this, but it had happened a couple of times when I was still playing footy. One day I went out for beers, and I got up in the middle of the night to turn the air con off, and um, I must have blacked out. And I woke up face first on the carpet with like a blood lip and blood on the carpet. So there are still some um, some effects afterwards, but I can say that they're all they're all cleared up now. <laughs>
0: Well, mate, you've just told the nation, actually (laughs) the world. (laughs) We're not good at keeping secrets here. Well, I am glad to hear that that's all settled down. So you did head back to football. How long after the injury were you back playing?
1: Yeah, I played the end of that year. So it must have been uh, anywhere between sort of that 15 to 18 weeks I must have missed. Yep. Yeah, so yeah, I managed to get back and play in that season, which was good and and then no hiccups after that.
0: Josh, you had a pretty stellar footy career, 225 games in total until injury ended that in 2017. Leading up to that, you know, career-ending moment, what was the highlight for you? Uh,
1: I think the highlight was definitely winning premierships. You know, I when I left North Melbourne at the end of 2009 and, and you know I copped a fair bit of backlash because we didn't. There wasn't as much free agency and stuff like that then. So leaving clubs was a bigger deal. And Hawthorne had just won a premiership in 2008, and they had a bad 2009. They wanted me to come across, and, and they dangled the premiership carried in front of you. So to come across in, in 2011, we we made the prelim. So we went out the week before the grand final, and then 2012 we made a grand final and lost. Um, to then wonder if we we're ever going to get there and then we got back there in 2013 and and won that Grand Final and then to go on and win three in a row in years 13, 14, 15 was pretty huge. So to be able to look back and, and think about the success we had there of, of playing in four Grand Finals in a row and winning three of them um, and, you know, really being called the, the best team of that era was pretty special and something I'll always cherish, you know, we, we have Grand Final reunions every 10 years, so it'll be great that, Every 10 years for three years in a row, I'll be able to catch up, you know, with everyone that was part of that um, magical journey we're on.
0: Yeah, that, that is amazing. Three years in a row. Would that have been a defining moment for you during that or was there uh, another defining moment throughout your career?
1: Oh, look, I think that was a uh, that was a pretty special time, you know, to play with the elite of the elite. And, you know, I ended up, and we certainly don't play for individual awards, but, you know, you play for premierships. But I was lucky enough in two of those years, 13 and 15, to win our best and fairest, so to be Hawthorne's best player that year. And, and, you know, they say that if you can be the best and fairest in a premiership team, then, you know, it's one of the great awards. So, you know, now that I've finished my career and we had that team success, being able to look back on some of the individual accolades as well and and cherish them is pretty special.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations. Righto, Josh, let's jump to 2017. What was the injury that ended your career?
1: So I I had, um, you know, a few groin issues during my career, which I tried to manage and and they they were pretty good. Um, And then just towards the end of 2016 and they flared up a bit, but they were actually going really well in preseason for 2017. I we remember meeting with the coach and he's like, you know, you can play for as, as long as you want because your body's in great nick in terms of everything else. And I was having a really good preseason, and and um, I can't remember how it happened, but I must have I did something in a game, slipped or moved, which injured it again. And, you know, from there I was sort of just battling and, and playing with it for the start of the 17 season and then, it was about round 10, I um, injured it again in a game and I just knew that that was probably going to be it. You know, I sort of always had this thing that I trained at 100% and and the coach always used to say to me, No, you know, look for me as a barometer at training, which was great, but if I train this hard, I'm probably going to burn myself out. And, you know, now I can look back, he's probably right. You know, I could have probably looked after that, my groin's a little bit better and, and been a bit smarter about the way I train, but for me... It was like to play at the at the top level and, and turn on on game day and beyond. I needed to train the way I play and it worked for me. So I have no regrets.
0: Yeah. Good on you. So I'm going to ask the question. You bowed out from professional football due to an injury and went camp drafting?
1: <laughs> yep. I thought I'd, uh, I thought I'd bow out of football with a groin injury and then try and take up a sport where you use all legs. So um, <laughs> you can say I'm not the smartest bloke. Um, but, yeah, look, it is an interesting thing, especially when I was uh, – I may have or may not have done a few camp drafts while I was still playing football. So it might not have been the best way to look after my groins. But, you know, you look back now, maybe towards the end of my career, you sort of lose a bit of that passion it becomes a little bit harder to go to training or you start getting other interests, I'm not sure. But, you know, for me to probably go and be riding horses and, and you know, and did a couple of camp drafts while I was playing footy, maybe says that it was my time to finish up because I, I wasn't as invested as I once was.
0: Okay. So step me through this. How and why <laughs> camp
1: drafting? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I just, I think it was about, Maybe 2015 or 16, I um, just started riding again a little bit, just with friends, a bit of fun, and and I was like, I, th- I think I'm going to buy a horse, and down towards spending a lot of time down towards the country, down towards Dalesford, Ballarat Way. So I went and bought a horse, and then I went to a couple of team penning events with some guys down there that I rode with, and then how uh, they said, oh, you know, if you want to get your horse trained up a bit take it to this guy and his, his name is Dave murphy and i went over there and and then he asked me if i'd ever seen what camp drafting was because that was a sport he did and i think it was the end of 2016 i went along to the uh merry camp draft and, and didn't compete just went to watch it and i think from that moment on i was pretty hooked you know it was it was involved horses which i really liked um it was competitive and you drank a lot of beer, so it it, um, <laughs> <laughs> it really did. It really did tick all the boxes. The only box it didn't tick was it needed a lot of leg work, and and obviously I had banged up groins. But apart from that. You could drink a lot of beer and and you know maybe your groins felt better because you couldn't feel them. So, I, uh, <laughs> I I I got into it then and and um, probably I should have done it while I was playing footy. You know when I was making more money because uh, <laughs> I just feel like just... it's not
0: a cheap sport.
1: Nah, uh, I uh, there's a funny story that must have been the start of 2017 when I did a draft and I was just riding in the encouragement. I think I finished fifth. And they they gave me a uh, an envelope with more winnings, <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, you win money here, and I opened it up, and there was a there was a check in there for Bendigo Bank for eight dollars sixty. <laughs> 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 I was like, oh, okay, but, you know, not that I had a super expensive horse, but you think about, you know, transport and horse and yeah, you know, all the things that you do <laughs> to win eight dollars sixty. I was like, oh god, hey, <laughs> look,
0: it all adds up.
1: It does, but <laughs> uh, you can't put a value on having a good time.
0: Absolutely. So Josh, what was the horse you bought? Was it trained or what did you go looking for?
1: Yeah, it was a, it was a stock horse. So it was from a guy that draft. I think all of his boys used to breed a horse and, and get it broken in and, and then get it to sell it. So I think I was <laughs> I think I was one of the boys. Um first paychecks when it was eighteen or nineteen, so Um, I'm glad the money went to something good like at the local pub where he would have spent it all. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I can't even think his name was was JB. He was just a uh, black stock horse. So he was great to learn on. And, you know, he's actually gone on to someone now who's who's learning and and getting into riding. So great experience. You know, he got to do a lot of cool things and and learn things on that horse. And, And that was the start of the camp drafting journey.
0: Did you find the transition to be hard or easy? Like you've gone from the spotlight where you're scrutinised, you're judged, to a sport where probably no one or not many people know who you are and realistically probably don't actually care how many hundreds of games of football you played in in front of however many thousands of people. Did you find that to be a breath of fresh air or a challenge in itself?
1: Well, it's funny you say that because at the start when I was with Dave, we were sort of looking at a program to, to start doing some drafts. And we contemplated going and doing drafts in New South Wales because you know no one follows AFL there. But drafting in Victoria, because a lot of people love footy in the country – and because Hawthorne was so successful. I had a lot of eyes on me, which made it worse. Okay. Um, because you know, I couldn't just I couldn't just go there and find the radar to be, oh, look, that's that Josh Gibson bloke who used yeah. to play yeah. football. And I have to and I've i said this um to people now. I was like, put me on the MCG in front of a hundred thousand on grand final day, no worries. Put me in a camp of a camp draft with twelve people on the sideline and I'd be shitting myself. So It was an interesting dynamic to feel so much pressure because it was a sport that I'm not good at. And I you know, it was was almost like it was a bit unfair. I had extra eyes on me because I was good at something else which doesn't relate to this whatsoever. So I just had to learn pretty quickly to get over that because people don't really care at the end of the day.
0: No, they don't. But they don't (laughs) it's funny because you know, you're confident in a stadium because that's the sport that you've played for however many years and that you have grown to become good at. And then you've thrown yourself into this massive new challenge and you are discovering your strengths and weaknesses.
1: Yeah, no, it isn't. You're going into a sport where you've got your mind to worry about, you've got the horses and also a cow. So, you know, there's three brains there that are working that you're trying to control theoretically, which is very different. you know, there's so many different aspects you can add. You know, your horsemanship skills, obviously, your ability to, to read a cow and, you know, like you, you're going up and, and going against guys that are dairy farmers and, you know, work cattle on horseback all day. So, yeah, I didn't do myself any favours by choosing camp draft. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but like I say to people, I just maybe I just want to be a true blue Aussie and, and you know, there's three sports that, that have been invented in Australia. You've got polo cross. AFL and, and cam drafting, so I've, I've ticked off two of the three and I've, I've got one to go.
0: <laughs> Do you think you'll get to polo cross?
1: No, I think, I'll, I think I'm think i going to be only 66% pure Aussie because I can't see myself getting on the polo cross field.
0: <laughs> so, Josh, you finished camp drafting for the day and you went to the bar. Did you find that people would, you know, come up for a yarn or would they keep their distance? And how did you find people treated you?
1: No, look, um, people definitely want to come up with a yarn and take the who I am side out of it. And the greatest thing I love about the sport is the camaraderie, the sense of community, families looking after each other, you know, there's people there with young kids running around and, you know, whether they're at your truck or someone else's, people always look out for them like they're their own children and you know, even though there is a little bit of competitiveness in the sport, no doubt, because um, people want to do well. But how much people are willing to help you and better you as a rider, which I've had numerous people help me in that area, which is is really great, and that's what I love about it. And whether it is on the horse and it's competitive time, or it's as you say at the bar, um, there's a great sense of community, and and um, I think that's why I love going so much. And you know, when you and when it's time for your run, yeah, you might get competitive, but for a big portion of the weekend it's about um, you know, catching up with people and, and having fun.
0: Yeah. So your cam drafting career is still fairly fresh. Have you got some highs so far?
1: Yeah, I, I I've got some highs. You know, at the when it started those first couple of years after I'd retired and I was still commentating, and you know I was I look back now on a laugh, I was trying to I'd ride horses during the week. Dave would be carting horses to draft for me. I'd be commentating Saturday, doing a show in Sydney at Fox Sports, jumping on a plane, flying to somewhere, hiring a car, driving to somewhere and drafting. And I remember doing that, commentating Sydney, flew to Adelaide, got in a car uh South Australia and then drove to Flurio Draft and, uh, and I won the encouragement there, so that was my first win. You know, because you know, encouragement's like, like being on your learners. You want to win that to get out of that that division. So, you know, I think it was was within my first six or seven drafts, I managed to win one. So, that was definitely a highlight. I think after that, you know, having a draft with some of the bigger boys, I've only got maiden horse at the minute. But whether I've been in maiden or novices or opens um, to win a few ribbons in novices has been pretty good and. This year was probably the first year I've had a crack at doing a ten or eleven drafts this year. So to win a few ribbons, a few seconds, no more blue ribbons yet, but to be improving and I guess even people coming up and say, "Geez, you improved so much!" That's that's all I'm after. Um, you know, as a as a competitive athlete, I'm always hungry to improve. So as long as I see improvement, I'll always keep showing up.
0: Yeah. Who are some of the people that have the biggest influence on you or, you know, mentors that you really look up to within the industry?
1: Yeah, I've been lucky. Obviously, Dave Murphy, who is there to, to get me started, has been a great help. I'm very close with Dan Steers. Yeah. And he's he's mad AFL man. He's a West Coast fan. So I was lucky last year. As COVID hit, I was actually leaving Victoria to go up there and, and visit him and, and then the border shut. So what was going to be um, a week or so ended up being about a month or two and um, you know spending time up there with him during that period definitely um, progressed me at a, at a very quick rate. You know just learning a, a lot more of the horsemanship side of things and, and you know really trying to learn the horse's mind and winning the mind over in the way you train them and work them was um, something I really really loved and I know that, that um, Dan loved working with me because he knows how um, OCD obsessive I am and meticulous in preparation. So I actually did his podcast and um, he talks about, you know, he, he runs clinics and someone's horse will have an issue and he'll show them how to do it and then they finally might get it right. And then he'll say, okay, now get your horse to do that 3,000 times. And, you know, that that's muscle memory. And he's like, you know, there's two types of people, one, Group will look at you and go, What, 3,000 times? You're kidding, aren't you? And he said, You know, there's the other group that's just like, Yep, sweet. You know, he said that I'll look at you, Josh, and you're the one that comes back and says, Yeah, I'll do it 4,000 times. Mm-hmm. So, um, working with him's uh, been awesome. And I was up at his place a couple of weeks ago, actually dropping off another horse. And he's one that I speak to, you know, almost every day. And, and I said, My good notes, and, and he's taught me a lot.
0: Do you have anyone, you know, from Queensland, New South Wales, or Victoria, that you watch as a camp draft competitor that you just love to meet and sit beside them and just pick their brains?
1: Yeah, there's a few that Pete Kamitsky is obviously a great draft that I've had a, had a bit to do with. You know, we're lucky down in Victoria, down in the Gippsland League, we've got some pretty good drafters for a small little pool down there that, you know, that have had success at Warwick and, and places like this. So, to be able to work, watch blokes like Matt Holtz and obviously Peter and Vicky Husscock, both of mm. them. Kenny Bolton, his son, Peter Bolton, who's just, you know, had a really good year at New Trin this year. Um, being able to get down there with these guys and and watch them a lot and them help me has been huge. And um, Bruce Odell's, Dave Readers, there's heaps of them. And uh, through work with Foresight and, and us being really strong, you know, in that supporting drafts and uh, well, any horse events, um, it allows me to be around it a lot more and, You know, it in turn allows me to work on my riding. So, you know, we're probably pretty sport, you know, because a lot of of the good riders are in Queensland. But we've got a few down here in Victoria that are pretty handy. And, you know, I'm always filming their runs and and picking their brain whenever I can.
0: Yeah. Is there an event that you're working towards to compete at to feel that you're up to go and compete
1: at? Well, it's funny you say that because... When I got into this, when I got into this, and I had no, I had no idea about what's what. And um, Dave was like, Oh well, why don't you just come up to Warwick with me because I'm going up there to compete?" And um, I was like, "Yeah, okay, I'll okay. come." And I was in Sydney at the time, and and drove down, and you know, I was used to just paying thirty five bucks for a run, and. And we're sitting around camp having a few beers and I was like, Oh mate, I better fix you up for my runs. What do I owe you? And he said something like, Oh, it's four or five hundred dollars. I was like, What? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, mate, it's serious here and I was sort of just put the beard out and put it shit. I better start <laughs> I better start getting serious. But like I look back now and I can't even believe that he got me to um, have a run now. I had two runs there. Um but that's <laughs> I was just completely oblivious to what it was. But now knowing more about it, you know, there, I'd like to be able to um, to go to those drafts someday. And it's not about winning or anything like that, but to be having my horses going well enough that you, you can put some runs together and, and show that you you sort of know what you're doing, you know, that you're not just a, um, a complete rookie like I would have looked like the last time I was there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Josh, I'd love to hear about your daily process. You're a busy guy. You own a chain of gyms, Rebel. Yeah. <laughs> you work for Foresight Supplements, which many of our listeners know of. When do you fit in riding?
1: It's <laughs> a good question. Um, look, so, yeah, I've got a chain of gyms with a business partner. He's based in Adelaide now and I've got some other investors in Sydney. And that's called Rebel. So we do like group training, like 45 minutes. People would know F45. A bit more advanced than that. So we have no studios. They're all across Australia. I'm not going to name all the places. So I used to do a lot of work in that. I've handed the reins over to that and and letting my business partner run them. um, Ben and and I'm just becoming a silent investor because my time is uh, taken up with with stuff at Foresight. So um, obviously that's a pretty amazing company that my in-laws started and have owned from the get-go. So... I'm really entrenched in, in working in that now and working with them on, on really taking it to the next level because it's a pretty phenomenal product that I'm sure a lot of the listeners, as you said on this, will know about and you know the science behind it's unraveled, um, the clinical trials and all that. So that takes up a lot of my time. Um, when do I get to ride? Uh, well, I try to get up at about four or so in the morning, get riding in, go to the gym, then go to work. And then um, depending if I've, got foot, if I've got footy training at night um, or i ride at night. So, And then well, obviously fit in the partner. So I am juggling a lot.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> but, she does get, what, like 20 minutes a day if you slotted her in?
1: <laughs> we've got a baby um, hitting, arriving in September. So uh, we've got a lot going on. <laughs> busy, busy. I oh, know she's the priority now. The horses have been put to the side, so
0: um, oh, I don't know if I believe you. I don't know if that actually happens.
1: No, well, I said that uh, this year um, I would just do the season at the start of the year, um, and then just work on a couple of younger ones or ones that are going to be sold, and focus on working her. So at the minute, I'm actually up. I flew into Orange this morning. I'm in Bathurst right now, just been visiting vets, and um, I'm up here for for a couple of days, and then back to Ballarat on Thursday. So yes, I'm a little bit busy, but busy is good.
0: Yeah. Busy is good. An active mind is a good mind, I say.
1: I totally agree.
0: So you mentioned your partner. Ashley is her name. So you and Ashley live where? Where's home?
1: So right now we're um, we're living in the, in the heart of Ballarat. Uh, we're in town. We've actually got a farm just between Ballarat and Dalesford, which we're just building a new house on. So we're hoping that that'll be finished by Christmas. And as I said, we're, we're living in town, which is great because, you know, our office for four sites in Ballarat, so it's it's nice and close to work and and it's pretty handy.
0: So uh, a little birdie did tell me that you are also trying to establish your own stud. Is that
1: right? <laughs> well, you know, we've, we've got it. I think we're just under 200 acres and then we've got a, another property of some more land. So, you know, every camp drafter wants to have cattle to work on. So we're just going to play around and, and have a little bit of fun and, you know, a bit of a breeding program with some Angus down there, which would be good fun. Just another hobby, you know, just <laughs> just something else to do. Um, yep. But no, I think, it, you know, we want to have some stuff on the farm and, and can't just be horses and, um, so why not
0: why not (laughs) absolutely why not (laughs) that sounds great josh i have thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you today and hearing about your journey i do thank you for taking the time to share that with us and i do hopefully one day look forward to meeting you in person
1: that would be great so thanks for having me on the podcast I hope this episode lived up to everything you wanted it to be. (laughs) Um, No, it was was great. I appreciate it.
0: No worries. Thanks, mate.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Thank you to our episode sponsor, Ringers Western. I'm Caitlin Hewitt, the founder and co-host of From the Saddle. I started this podcast a year and a half ago because I knew important stories from rural Australia weren't being told. We hear stories of triumph and tenacity, heartache and loss, From rodeo riders, outback ringers, cattle traders, bronze sculptors and more. From the Saddle is an independent podcast. It's just us telling stories that matter to our community and we are so stoked that nearly 100,000 people have joined us for the ride. We're looking for partners this season to help tell these stories because we think they're worthy of being told. They're a part of our history and possibly our future. If you're interested, we'd love to hear from you.